Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, December 18th, we are studying Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 12. The way is cleared. The signal is lifted. The message sounds forth. Your salvation comes. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure to be here. Pastor Roth, we're looking at Isaiah 62 this morning because Isaiah 62 verses 10 through 12 is an Old Testament text for the Christmas dawn service. I don't think I've ever had a Christmas dawn service here in Smithville, but it well, go ahead. Have you? No, we haven't. Um, I think it would be a hard sell. You know, it's kind of <laughs> tough getting people to church even uh, before, you know, 10 o'clock on Christmas Day. So uh, I suppose the, you know, I think of Easter and you have the Easter sunrise service. I suppose dawn on Christmas is an appropriate time to have a, a separate service, thinking of the joy that is there waking up knowing that the Savior has been born. Not all that different from, I suppose, the, the joy of children waking up on Christmas morning that sometimes you see in movies or read about in books. And so it seems appropriate to me to have a, a Christmas dawn service. And certainly we've seen how the prophet Isaiah fits in very well with the season of Advent. Today we're talking season of Christmas. We've been jumping around the book of Isaiah in this series in the midst of other prophets as well, thinking about our Lord's coming. Now we're arriving actually at the coming on Christmas. Give us some context in the book of Isaiah. Remind us of some of the things we've seen the prophet do, where he's been, and where we're landing here in chapter 62 today. Well, we're coming close to the end. And so, um, I, I, you know, we, we had um, the servant songs, um, you know, 42, 49. 52 and 53, which of course is predicting why the Messiah is going to come. And that is namely to be the the righteous one who will bear the sins of the masses and lay down his life for the peoples. I I think that as you get towards the end of Isaiah, um, it tends to um, point towards the, um, the, the last days. Um, So, you know, Advent is, is always a good time to talk about, uh, the end of the the end of the world too, and the uh, uh, the return of our Lord. But yeah, as you get closer and closer to the end of Isaiah, it's it's focused more and more on the outreach of the church, on missions. So um, you know, I, Isaiah is a little bit of a, a biblical canon in miniature. The first thirty nine chapters tend to to focus mostly, you know, more so on Old Testament type themes. Isaiah forty predicts John the Baptist coming. You know, Isaiah 53 is the crucifixion, and then it ends on a point of resurrection. And then as you get to the end of Isaiah, it, it, it does have that sort of Matthew 28 feel, go unto the Gentiles, because there's this heavy emphasis upon the, the epiphany light shining 
um, out to the Gentiles and the ingathering of the peoples, and especially Isaiah 65 and 66 focus on last judgment and the uh, the new heavens and the new earth. As we were, I was reflecting on Isaiah 62 in preparation for this study. I I recalled that Isaiah 62 1 to 7 is actually the appointed Old Testament reading, at least in Lutheran service book lectionaries, under occasions for the mission festival. And and you're right, you do start to see this emphasis on mission in the latter part of Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 60, that's the appointed Old Testament text for the day of Epiphany, which speaks of the coming of the Magi. And so, the, I mean, kind of the, the sweep of Isaiah if we can say it like this, particularly when you get to chapter 40, chapters 40 through 55 really focus on that servant of the Lord and all that he will do, culminating in that section with the familiar text from Good Friday. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was silent. All those familiar phrases that we know from the season of Lent. And then starting in maybe chapter 56, you really do see how the work of the servant then blossoms forth within the work of the church and that theme of going out and sending this good news into all nations, which isn't all that far off now that I think about it from some of the things we heard at the very beginning of Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah chapter two earlier in this series where the prophet sees the mountain of the Lord being raised up and all the nations streaming to it to hear the word of God in the church. So I mean, with all these themes then, now that we know we're, we're arriving in this text on Christmas dawn, how do, how do these things come together on a celebration like Christmas? You know, I think um, Dr. Luther, some of his best preaching on the cross was actually on, on Christmas. And so he did a really good job of tying everything together. And I think Isaiah, Isaiah as a whole um, helps us focus on that sort of uh, con- connected thematic, um, everything is tied together um, motif. So, I, I mean, even though you, you know, we, we celebrate the church here um, and, and focus on different parts of our Lord's life and have different emphases, nonetheless, the whole counsel of God uh, is, is in place anytime we, we gather as the church. Um, but I think this text in particular from Isaiah 62 is very, very nice for, for the dawn of Christmas because we see, um, if, if we take the context into account, um, the uh, there is a, a sort of emphasis on on um, a new a new uh, world dawning, um, and uh, the brightness we get the, the language of brightness and a burning torch at the beginning of Isaiah sixty two. Maybe we should actually read a few verses to lead up to it. Sure. So the text for Christmas dawn is Isaiah sixty two verses ten through twelve. I'll read up to that so we can get a little context before we jump into those appointed verses. So this is Isaiah sixty two. We'll start with verses one through nine. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. 
And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. That gives us the context leading up to verses 10 through 12. Pastor Roth, there's tons there. And again, we're, we're going to focus on verses 10 through 12, which I'll, we'll read in a little bit. But what is, what's in that preceding context of chapter 62, verses 1 through 9, that we should notice as we get ready to read 10 through 12? Yeah, so just to start off in, in verse 1 of Isaiah 62, why is the Lord doing this? It's for Zion's sake. It's for Jerusalem's sake. So... This reminds us then it is that that everything in Christianity, um, and this really comes to the fore at Christmas, is for us men and for our salvation, as we say in the Nicene Creed. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Why you know, you see this uh this sort of motto, Jesus is the reason for the season. You know, people put that up. That's a fine sentiment, of course, there naturally wouldn't be a Christmas season without Jesus. But the 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 reality of the gospel is you sinners are the reason for the season because God so loved the world that he gave you his son. And so, you know, the son of God didn't need a season for his own sake. You know, he's the word incarnate. Well, he's, he's the, the word who was with God and who was God, the only begotten son. And so he's all, all sufficient. He doesn't need anything, but for your sake, for your sake, he comes uh, to to lay down his life as a ransom for the masses. So I think that that's a good starting point there. And 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 why is it he so he he does this for Zion's sake for Jerusalem's sake? And what happens? The righteousness goes forth as brightness, salvation as a burning torch for us men and for our salvation. That's a starting point. So the Lord is doing this for the sake of sinners. He's doing it with his voice. I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet. The word of the Lord is that which sounds forth. We've seen that in the book of Isaiah all over the place, how the Lord will send out messengers. We've got messengers coming here. And in this, one of the themes that I think you see is that the nation, well, this is verse two, the nations will see this and start to come to this light. There's that mission emphasis that we were talking about earlier. The people will see what the Lord is doing and be drawn to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we're going to, I mean, we always lump the, the Magi in right with, with the Christmas celebration, even though it probably is six months to two years beyond, but these Kings come, it's really more of an epiphany theme, but we celebrate it at Christmas as well. Um, so every day you should be moving your, your Magi a little bit closer to the, uh, to, to, to the manger, right? Make sure they're to the east of your nativity set at <laughs> home. That's right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, all the kings are going to see your glory. And, and so this is a, again, this is a theme that occurs. Um, you know, you see this also in, in the book of Revelation as well, that we're, we're, we're actually going to be kings with Christ, right? We're going to reign with him. Uh, he makes us a royal priesthood, a kingdom uh, to reign with him. I also want to highlight 
uh, briefly because this is just such an uh, important theme for our, our age in which you live. Look at how the, the marriage theme um, comes up in here. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. We just can't emphasize enough that there's far more at stake in our conversations today about marriage than merely the preservation of a social institution. Rather, this is a divine institution created uh, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, but in fact was, was instituted for the sake of showing us uh, the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the Holy Christian Church, and this is exactly what's going on in this text. Um, and you also have the language of forsakenness and delight. Your land is going to be married. So this is the language of the Lord coming and taking him for himself a bride, which really reminds us of Ephesians 5, that Christ laid down his life for the church because he loved her, gave himself for her, and then washed her through the waters of holy baptism. In, in that language of marriage there, with the contrast between, say, the names in verse 4, forsaken and desolate, versus my delight is in her and then married, you see how the Lord takes for himself a bride whom he makes lovely. His bride was not lovely before he came to her. There's many images in the scriptures where the Lord talks about the way that he he called Israel to himself, and he's the one that made her lovely in his sight. They didn't bring anything to the table, such that the Lord... The Lord is doing the giving here. Apart from him, they would be forsaken, they would be desolate, and the whole world would see that. But when the Lord comes then, the world begins to see what the Lord is doing for the church is drawn to that. I'm reminded of the hymn, The Church's One Foundation, and some of the imagery that's talked about there. It uses the language of bride and bridegroom, as you've mentioned. It also talks about you know the world sees her, how does that go? Though the uh, through with a though with a scornful wonder, the world sees her oppressed by schisms rent asunder by heresies distressed. I mean, that's what the world sees, and yet this is the reality of what the Lord is doing here in this text in Isaiah sixty-two. Yeah, and and again, Isaiah, I, I mean, um, if. Ephesians 5, um, you know, he, he sanctifies the church. He washes her. He makes her clean. He presents her to himself as spotless and holy. Uh, and as we do sing in that hymn, with his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. So, uh, oh no, this is a beautiful imagery, but again, just so important to emphasize that um, marriage uh, in the church must be maintained and, and, and praised because it is the essential um, way that God describes his relationship with us. And if, if we lose that, then we will lose the greater gift. If we lose what marriage is for men and women, we risk losing the greater gift of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and a proper understanding and application of that. That's right. And, and then also one other important thing to emphasize is that he, the bridegroom, always remains faithful. And that's very clear in this, this text, that the Lord is faithful. We will not be forsaken. Now, we might stray. We, we might, you know, wander a bit. But we can always come back to our bridegroom who will welcome us with open arms, cleanse us, and receive us back into, into his arms. Given the context of Isaiah, that's very important as well. These words, though written in the 700s, maybe 600s BC, really apply to the people of Israel about 100 years later when they're in exile in Babylon. And if there was ever a time in Israel's history when they thought that they were desolate, forsaken, 
that would have been it. And so for the Lord to speak these words through Isaiah, again, 100 years ahead of time, would have been a tremendous comfort for them to know that the one, the one who had sent them into exile because of their sin was also going to be the one who would bring them back from exile and restore them to that true relationship with him. Though they had committed adultery against him by their idolatry, he was going to seek after them and restore them once more. Exactly. And um, it's also really important to remember with Isaiah that there's multiple levels of fulfillment going on. So there is going to be the, um, you know, the, the fulfillment in the, the, the recalling of the people to Israel, um, the reestablishment of temple worship and so on. But then the greater fulfillment is going to come with the coming of the Messiah. Which is why a text like this shows up at Christmas. And also then, as we've said, invites us to reflect upon our Lord's entire ministry, particularly as he goes to the cross, as he rises from the dead, and even now in his ministry that he does through his church in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. All of these things, I mean, a, a text like this reflects throughout the ages on, on all of those things as we see our Lord at work to do this, not just for his people in the Old Testament, but also now for his people in the New Right. You also get uh, echoes of Psalm 98 in here when it talks about God's right hand and his mighty arm. So, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right right hand and his his holy arm have uh, gotten him the victory. Hmm. Psalm 98 is the joy to the world psalm. Yes. Correct. So again, another another Christmas time that we're thinking of those themes. One more thing in in the context to pick up. Pastor Roth would be the the watchmen that are mentioned in yeah. verses six and seven. Tell us a little bit about them. Well, it's going to set the stage for verses ten through twelve because you're going to have entrance through the gates, preparing a way for people to come back into Jerusalem. And so, I think those watchmen are going to be on the lookout. And that really reminds me of uh, "Wake Awake for Night Is Flying" too. And, you know, the watchmen on the heights are crying, "Awake, Jerusalem, arise." So I think that anytime we come across that language of watchmen, it should it should alert us to the entrance into the, the kingdom, uh, entrance into Jerusalem, and then also the return of the bridegroom on the last day. Mm-hmm. So again, those are some of those Advent themes coming up, some of the end of the church year themes that are coming up again. Uh, yeah, the wake awake for night is flying. That's one of the one of the best hymns in the book, in my opinion. That the watchmen are even singing in stanza two, which is just an, I mean, but again, think of, to put it in context historically, think of the, the great joy that would have been there for the people to recognize that the Lord's deliverance was coming. To go back to, you know, the return from exile is often called a new exodus. And think about what the people do after the crossing of the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. They sing. You get that song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, where the people break forth into song because of what the Lord has done. And here too, here too as well, as as the people anticipate the coming of their God with salvation, the watchmen are looking for it and and they sing. They sing. I, I'm not sure. I, I always try to to figure out what the the picture is that we should use for watchmen today. I'm, I'm not sure what we what do we watch for today that would be an equivalent to the watching of the watchmen in in the book of Isaiah. I don't know. What do you think, Pastor Roth? Well, I mean, if you want to think about watching exciting things, I mean, you could think maybe of a, a you know your favorite team winning in sports, and everyone rises to their feet and starts to cheer and shout. 
Um, so, you know, that's not, um, you know, analogous necessarily, but it right. could be something we could think about. Sure. I mean, the, I've tried and this, and, and I don't say this just because of Christmas, but maybe when, when there's a, a husband and wife who are expecting a child and the grandparents are at home waiting for that phone call to find out that the child has been born, the child is here, something, something like that, that kind of anticipation where you're, you're waiting for this news. And when it finally comes, there's this great joy, uh, relief, just exuberance over yeah. what the Lord has done. I, I think that's great. And then one other uh, thing with the, uh, the Christmas season is, is um, Handel's Messiah is uh, always performed this time of year <laughs> in non-COVID years, I guess. That's right. But, uh, but, you know, when you get to the Hallelujah Chorus, everyone stands up. Right. I mean, and that's, and, and that, that's the, the perfect time to, to get up and celebrate. And, right. Right. And well, and Handel's Messiah is a fantastic example of how these Christmas texts, Advent Christmas texts, lead beyond them. You know, as you said, Handel's Messiah gets played around this time of year, but it it keeps going past, you know, we all know the for unto us a child is born, but there's a lot more to that piece. And he really takes you into the passion and Mm -hmm. also the resurrection and and then to the second coming as well. And I think that's a, that's a fantastic example of how all these things that our Lord does go together as one, one big package. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's read now the appointed text for Christmas dawn. This is Isaiah 62 verses 10 through 12. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. That is Isaiah 62 verses 10 through 12 the Old Testament reading for the Christmas dawn service in the three-year lectionary. Pastor Roth, in verse 10, one thing that stands out to me is this double command twice. You get go through, go through the gates, and then again, build up, build up the highway. Uh, why does why does Hebrew do that sometimes? What's the, what's the point of a repeated command? Well, I would imagine it's for emphasis. Sure. I mean, I, I, and that's kind of like, well, what is Pastor Apple thinking at the moment? <laughs> well, comfort, comfort, ye my people. Back in Isaiah chapter 40, you, you see this double command. Sometimes you'll see the Lord repeat a person's name twice. Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Abraham, yeah. Abraham, just to name a few off the top of my head, where, where the Lord, he wants to get your attention. So you see that here in, in verse 10. Now, what's going on particularly? Start with the, the going through the gates. So I think that there, there could be two things going on. Um, it could be that there are uh, messengers going out now to signal that it's time for these, the, those who are enslaved to come home. And so prepare the road for them. Um, I mean, and this sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? So he goes goes out and he prepares the way for the Lord and then calls them back to him. And then they come to the waters of baptism to receive the washing of regeneration and renewal. So I think then in its historical context, this is talking about the 
the the, uh, the messengers going out and saying it's time for you, you know, slaves to come back home. You're liberated now. But then to look forward to the New Testament, uh, this is I uh, this is the the ministry going out into the world to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem and then going out to all nations. Concerning this this way or this road that comes up, uh, this has been something that's been on my mind as I've gone through this series in Advent with the prophets. It's an image that Isaiah uses several times, but there's, well, there's different people that walk on this road, it seems. Sometimes, as you said, there's messengers going through the gates going on this road. Sometimes it's the people walking on this road. Sometimes it's God going on this road. It seems like, I mean, everybody is is walking on this way, this road, this highway, all with the goal of, I think, ultimately being at home with the Lord. I mean, help, I don't know, help me. I know that's several texts. I'm thinking Isaiah 40, Isaiah 35, all talk with this imagery. John the Baptist, it comes up with him. Help, yeah. me, help me out with some of that. Well, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, looking forward again to the New Testament, what does Jesus say about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life and the path to the Father. And then what is the early church called? Well, in the book of Acts, the disciples are known as the way. Um, so uh, this is definitely Christological pointing to the, the Messiah being that way back to God. It also does bring to mind the, the two ways that we see so often in the Psalms, um, the, 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 you know, the, the crooked way of the, the wicked, but then the, uh, uh, the straight and narrow way of the righteous. And that's, that's another New Testament image, right? Broad and easy is the way or road that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And that way, as you said, would would be Jesus, who is the way for us. We're going to go ahead and take our break here on Sharper Iron. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, December 18th. We're studying Isaiah chapter 62, verses 10 through 12, the Old Testament reading for the Christmas dawn service. We've got Pastor Carl Roth with us. He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we we're looking at verse 10, where we get this familiar image from the prophet Isaiah and elsewhere in the scriptures of the way, which Jesus appropriates to himself in John 14. Early Christians are known as those who follow the way. Then Isaiah in verse 10 gives us another picture, one that we've seen before, lift up a signal over the peoples. What's the picture here with a signal and how does the Lord fulfill this? Yeah, it also can be translated as banner. So 
the idea then is is uh, something lifted up so that it can attract people and lead people. Um, so I, I do think this will point us forward to um, Christ in the New Testament uh, being lifted up on the cross. And he says, uh, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Um, I think that that text actually is saying that on the cross, Jesus draws all humanity into himself and suffers the wrath of God against the sin of the world. And then he, he's also lifted up there on the cross as that signal to, to uh, summon people to come and, and be saved by him. He, he uses in John chapter 3, he compares himself to the bronze serpent that Moses once lifted up in the wilderness which maybe seems like an odd Old Testament text to choose for that sermon, but it's it's perfectly appropriate that Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on the pole so that all who were bitten by the snakes would live in Numbers chapter 21. And so Jesus is lifted up on the tree so that all who have been bitten by sin would look at him in faith and live. Because as you said, and I like the way that you said that, that he draws all men to himself in the sense that he he takes all of mankind's sins and sufferings and sorrows upon himself, like Isaiah says in chapter 53, and, and he makes it his own and then he dies in our place. That's a fantastic, fantastic picture. Yeah, and it also really ties in, I think, with uh, Genesis 3 um, as well with the, the accursed serpent, right? What mm-hmm. does the Lord do? He curses the serpent. And now this serpent is lifted up on a pole and Jesus identifies as that, that accursed one and what does paul say galatians 3:13 cursed is everyone who's hanged upon a tree so christ was was cursed by god's wrath um, on the cross to redeem those of us who are under the law to set us free and then that becomes the signal that becomes the banner to which we look which seems strange to our human reason and and yet that's where our lord wants us to see him and believe in him. Uh, I'm reminded of in the passion accounts in the gospels, how the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, and they would stand there and, and they mocked him. And they said, if you come down from the cross, Jesus will believe in you. But Jesus wants you to believe in him because he stays on the cross. Like the centurion there. It's, it's at the moment of crucifixion at, as Jesus dies. That's when he sees truly that Jesus is the son of God. And, and there's the, the signal, there's the banner that we look to that draws us to faith in the one who can save. Indeed. And, and the, the cries of the crowd, the taunts of the crowd echo Satan's temptations in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, then turn the stone, stones into bread, serve yourself. But, you know, for Jesus to have come down from the cross, which he certainly could have done, right? He's, he's divine, uh, wouldn't have done us any good. So he pushes through the sacrifice to completion for our sake. And that is why Paul then will go out and say, when I was with you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when he's rebuking the Galatians for their return to um, righteousness by the law, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Was it not before your eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified? Now, this doesn't mean that they they drew a picture or something. Rather, it was that Paul, through his preaching, depicted Jesus Christ crucified as the event that saved them from sin and redeems them from the Mosaic law, which, as he says in Acts 13, you could not be justified by. 
with this talk of the the signal as well and how the cross of Christ is not what we would expect. In First Corinthians one, he talks about that it's foolishness to the it's foolishness to the Jews and weakness to the Greeks. It, it looks like foolishness, it looks like weakness, and yet it truly is God's wisdom and it is His power to save. I'm also reminded of the the word that the angels brought to the shepherds on Christmas night, that the sign that they would look for, that which would identify the newborn savior, well, it was he was a baby, <laughs> wrapped in swaddling claws, lying in a manger. Who would have looked for a savior there? And yet that was the sign. And then again, that's that's magnified in the sign, the signal, that's ultimately the one that God desires to look to, which is the cross. Yeah. And you know, it's the city of David and who write, who writes Psalm 22, but David, and he describes the suffering of the Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm. Which really is something we should bring up when we get to verse 12 here, because we're going to be a city not forsaken. Yeah. So in verse 11, then the prophet continues, behold, the Lord is proclaimed to the end of the earth. We get this again. The word is going out. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes here. I mean, that's that is Christmas language to again to tie to Luke chapter two. Today in the city of David has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Your salvation is here. It, I mean, that's the joy of Christmas. It is. It's also Advent because what is, you know, Advent means coming to mm-hmm. and um, he comes you know, um, on on Palm Sunday to the city of Jerusalem to to enter it and become a king, not by force, but rather by the opposite of force, by laying down his life on the cross for us. What about, as the verse continues, his reward is with him, his recompense before him. What is the reward, the recompense that the Lord brings with him when he comes? Yeah, this also reminds me of a, a number of the Advent hymns um, that, that talk about him rewarding his, you know, those who, who love him and believe in him, but, but being a terror to his foes. So his reward is with him. Well, this is a reward of grace. He comes to give us something that we certainly don't deserve. Um, not by my merit or worthiness could I ever, you know, receive anything from God, um, who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid, Paul says, but rather it's a reward of grace. And, you know, you, you get the language of the crown of life being a reward. Um, and so, so the, um, this also reminds me of Isaiah 40 when, when he's going to give his people double for their sins. That doesn't mean double punishment. That means he's going to give twice as much forgiveness as they need. This talk of, again, the Lord coming, or and I think, well, it doesn't, Isaiah 62 doesn't say your God comes, which we've seen elsewhere. In Isaiah, it says your salvation comes. Just the, the identification of the coming of God with the coming of salvation is, is the only point I want to draw out there. But I think it is important. We think of the name Jesus. That means mm-hmm. he saves. That, that is what he has come to do, is to bring salvation. And to those who are the Lord's people, who look to him for salvation in repentant faith, that is a reward that they receive. But to those who reject him, it is it is recompense. It is, it is terror to his foes. And you're quoting from, Oh Lord, how shall I meet you earlier? That's and and again, when you consider where the people of Israel are at the moment, knowing that the Lord will 
bring his recompense to those who have been enslaving them and oppressing them is good news that these enemies that they cannot defeat the Lord will. And, and how much more for us, these enemies, sin, death, the devil, which we cannot defeat the Lord can and has defeated in his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Who gives us the victory, right? He mm-hmm. gives us, gives us the victory. Yeah. I'm also thinking, um, the first Sunday after Christmas, uh, at least in the one year series of readings, um, has the, um, Simeon, at the temple. So, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Where's the salvation? Well, it's this little baby's holding. So, um, so, so uh, there's your signal to even go back to verse 10. Right, right. And, and all of that, again, coming to fruition in what the Lord does by his death and his resurrection, the culmination of all this, that is the, the signal that we would see and see in faith. As, as Simeon did, who, who would have thought that this child he's holding in his arms is the savior. And yet he saw it in faith. Same with the centurion then at the cross and, and, and ultimately us in John chapter 20, blessed are you who have not seen and yet have believed even as we, I mean, gosh, you brought up the song of Simeon, which we use after the sacrament mm-hmm. that, that there we too have seen our salvation. And so we too can depart in peace. Yeah. And, you know, one other Christmas theme, this isn't exactly related to our text, but you know what Bethlehem means, right? House of bread. House of bread. So the bread of life comes to be born uh, in, a, in a place where animals eat. And then uh, the, message is, the message is shared by shepherds. Um, there's so much, so much agriculture and food imagery there that we could do stuff with. That's right. That's right. Now, in verse 12 of Isaiah 62... We come back to something we talked about in the context, the matter of uh, names. And so they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You shall be called sought out a city, not forsaken. So we got four different names to consider and we'll consider them in turn. But before, before we look into those specifics, just the matter of when the Lord gives a name in the scriptures, what is the, or when he changes a name as well, because we see that in the context as well. What's the significance of that? Well, one example would be Abraham, right? Abram is changed to Abraham because that means the father of many nations, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a change of name can signify um, a commissioning, a, um, you know, a, um, a task that's going to be uh, achieved. But it's also a, a form of the Lord claiming you. So when, he, when you put your name on a, on a book or on your office or something, you're saying, that belongs to me. And when, um, you know, children take their, their, their parents' name, right? The last name shows that you belong to a family. So this shows then that the Lord is, is uh, you know, claiming these people as his own. And I think holy especially is, is an important one because as we sing in uh, the, the greater Gloria, for thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord. And that's a reference to the whole, the only holy is a reference to first Samuel or second Samuel, one or the other. But um, either way, we know only the Lord is holy. And so only he then can make other people holy. And this is exactly what he promised that he would do to his people back in Leviticus. I am holy. Well, he's Exodus two, the whole Pentateuch. I'm holy. You're going to be holy. Not just you need to be holy. Now get out there and get busy being holy, but rather I'm going to make you my holy people. 
And this then also is exactly what, well, don't forget, Jesus is the Holy One of God. And so then by incorporation into his death and resurrection, we, we share in his holiness. And this is why in First Peter it says that we are a holy people, a holy nation. Before we leave the matter of the name changing, the one that comes to mind from the Old Testament for me in this context, I think would be Jacob, the cheater, who who gets his name changed to Israel, the one, and I know there's a little bit of disagreement over exactly how you consider that, but I, I would take Israel as God struggles for you or God strives for you. I, I know some some would say he strives with God. There, there's some ambiguity, but I, I think the the way that you see the change of name from Jacob, the one who cheats, to this one whom for whom God strives or struggles, that that change of of name, change of identity, change of calling, the and done by grace fits very nicely with this context where you've gotten forsaken and desolate, being changed to delight, being in her, married, and then these beautiful names that we've got here. In terms of the word holy, you're right on that this holiness is a gift from God, first and foremost. It's not something that we achieve. In the New Testament, one of the places we see this very often is just at the beginning of Paul's epistles, where he will write to the saints, the word saints, that's the holy ones. And even right there in those verses that sometimes we skip over, there is that same gospel that you get here in Isaiah 62. These are holy ones, not because of, you know, how great those folks in Corinth were, right? Those those Christians in Corinth, they had issues, and yet Paul names them saints, which is beautiful gospel. It is, and in fact, you'll 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 often get in in English translations, even such as the ESV, that the Corinthians were called to be saints. But the fact is, to be is not in the Greek text. It is called saints. Um, so he's summoned them to be saints, but more fundamentally, he has named them saints. Um, so we, you know, we're holy, holy, uh, completely holy, completely by grace. And then we are called to live holy lives. In other words, be who we are. Mm. Right. And we talk about this often in the third article of the creed. We talk about sanctification and we can speak about that in a narrow sense, which is being holy as we are, the holy life that God gives us to live. But what we're talking about here is sanctification in the broad sense, this gift that God gives to us as he calls us by the gospel through the through the word. Yeah, I also think it's worth in that context mentioning that forgiveness of sins is not strictly related to justification, but it means literally to send away sins or remove sins. And so, uh, it is it, the uh, the removal of sins from our lives is always imperfect in this life, but it is through the forgiveness of sins that we are not only justified but also sanctified. Also, we call the Lord's Supper the Holy Communion because it is the holy body and blood of Jesus. And I don't think we should downplay the reality that He is that it is this holy body and blood being given to us, and it has sanctifying effects. So it's not just a reminder that I'm forgiven, but it is also something God is actively working through, a means of grace. The next name after the holy people that Isaiah gives us here is the redeemed of the Lord. What's the significance of that name? So to to redeem means to set free from slavery. So the event of the Exodus is the Old Testament event of redemption par excellence. 
But then we have, uh, you know, Jesus being the Redeemer, the one who buys us back from sin, death, and the devil in hell, pays the debt that we owe to the Father so that we could be set free from slavery to sin. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So it can't be said any better than what Dr. Luther says in the explanation to the second article of the Creed. Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, with his innocent sufferings and death, that I may be his own. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's, I think that's worth pointing out just briefly here, that when the Lord sets us free, it means that we belong to him. You're, you're going to have a master, or, or to use the language of the catechism, you're going to have a Lord. The question is, do you have a good Lord or a bad Lord? Do you have a, a Lord who would enslave you or a Lord who, who in whose service you truly are free? And we would receive the latter only in Christ. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, the height of folly to want to belong to yourself. And so that's why Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You know, it's a really good thing that we don't belong to ourselves, but that we belong to Jesus. Because if I belong to myself, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, what's going to happen after I die? Well, that's bad news. (laughs) Well, and that's what, I mean, that was the temptation in the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve would become like God, that they would be gods unto themselves. They would belong to themselves. And and we see where that has led for them and for us as well. And so it is a great mercy and grace of our Lord that he would pay this price to make us his own once again. That is where true freedom lies, is to be one who belongs to the Lord. Yeah, it's it seems paradoxical. Um, everybody thinks that they want to be free, but to, you know, it's, the Lord's service is perfect freedom. The third name Isaiah gives us in verse 12 is you shall be called sought out. Takes us into that name. Oh, you know, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Uh, that would be Luke nineteen ten. Um, the Zacchaeus, the Zacchaeus account. Um, the, the good shepherd seeks out the lost sheep and the good shepherd is Jesus. It's not us underlings, our, us pastors, although we're to strive to seek, seek the lost as best we can. The one who is actually doing the work through the Holy spirit is the, the good shepherd. So I think, um, you don't, you know, one important point to emphasize here is that you, you don't need to be sought unless you're lost. And so we are lost and condemned creatures. So we need somebody to seek us out. Um, another verse that I would point to would be First Peter 2, 20, 24 and 25, that you were straying like sheep, but now, and the translations, I'll get this wrong as well. Now you have been returned. It's a passive. You have been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So that is the Holy Spirit reaching out and, pulling us back in and bringing us to the good shepherd. Jesus tells three very vivid parables in Luke 15 to this same effect. The lost, let's see, the lost sheep comes first, then the lost coin, and finally the lost son. And I I would say it's actually the lost sons. Both of those sons are lost, the younger and the older. And, And in each, it is the action of the seeker 
that that is the center of the parable. It is the shepherd who goes and finds the lost sheep. It is the woman who finds the lost coin. And it is ultimately the father who finds both his son who has run away from him in licentious living and also his son who has run away from him thinking that he's somehow earned his place, the older son. It is the father who does the seeking. The It's always on the action of the, the seeker rather than the the finder. Did I say that right? I don't know if I said that right. No, I think that's okay. exactly right. And, and it reminds me, you know, I think the book of Jonah and the book and the parable of the um, prodigal son kind of end on the same note, right? It's almost a challenge that, you know, the Lord has sought, you know, these, these Gentiles out, sought sinners out. And then it's a challenge to God's chosen people. Are you going to do the older brother part? Are you going to do the chauvinistic Israel part and reject his mercy toward the Gentiles? Are you going to reject his forgiveness of the younger brother? Um, and and, it, and you don't get the answer in either one of those places. But it's very clear what the response is supposed to be, that we want to uh, rejoice in the Lord seeking out and saving the lost. Yeah, the Lord is the one who does the seeking and the saving. It's it's not the other way around. To use Jesus' language in John 15, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. You didn't seek me, I sought you. That's that's the language here in Isaiah 62 as well from the Lord. The last name in, in Isaiah 62 verse 12 is a city not forsaken. We've got oh, about five minutes here, Pastor Roth. Yeah, so I, I alluded to this earlier, but anytime I see the word forsaken, I can't help but thinking of that so-called cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, there's a deep mystery in those words. Um, It is not a cry of despair because he continues to cry out. Jesus continues to cry out to his father. My God, my God. But uh, the, the question is, why was he forsaken? And I think the answer is very clearly given uh, in, in Isaiah 53, he was stricken, smitten for our offenses. By his stripes, we are healed. So the answer to the question comes um, elsewhere. Uh, it, it does demonstrate that cry of Jesus experiencing the wrath of God uh, shows us how deep the wounds were and how much he truly felt forsaken of God because he, he was forsaken for us. But the answer to the question really is for us men and for our salvation. So in the word, a city not forsaken, we're looking forward again to the cross of our Lord where he is forsaken so that we would not be, that the Lord would, would remain with us. He would be our Emmanuel, not forsaken. The Lord, himself, I mean, that is a mystery, isn't it? That Jesus was there forsaken by his father on the cross so that you and I and all who are in the church, the city not forsaken is the church today. That is where the Lord, we're not talking about a physical city in the Middle East, Jerusalem. We're talking about the church. This is the city that's not forsaken. And what does Jesus say to the baptized? He says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this ties in nicely with Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. So we will never be forsaken. Um, it's one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. You know, um, keep your life free from the love of money, you know, um, because he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So um, that the, the, there's several psalms that echo that confidence as well, right? The Lord is my light and salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? 
we have this tremendous confidence as Christians that no matter what bad stuff happens in the world or in our personal lives, we know that the Lord's never going to abandon us. We might not feel his presence from day to day in any sort of warm, fuzzy, emotional way. Uh, that's not the emphasis. Um, you did allude earlier to those words of uh, Jesus to Thomas, that uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we focus uh, at Christmas and throughout the year not on you know warm, fuzzy feelings and sentiments, but rather upon the objective, dependable means of grace and the, the promise of God who stands behind them, the God who never lies. And what greater promise could there be from the Lord that we are not forsaken than the fact that he comes to take our flesh? Particularly at Christmas, this news that we are not forsaken is right there in front of us, that that he is the word made flesh. He is our brother. You know, if what the, the I was looking at this hymn earlier from Paul Gerhardt in TLH, All My Heart Again Rejoices. You know, if if our Lord and Maker hated men, would he then be a flesh partaker? And the answer is no. <laughs> if he hated you, he wouldn't have taken your flesh. And, and and there's the proof that that you are not forsaken, but the Lord loves you, and, and he still comes with that same flesh and blood in his sacrament of the altar. And and as you said, this is such a such a great comfort to us Christians. Pastor Roth, with just about thirty seconds, I'll let you respond or, or give us closing words of comfort here this morning. Oh, I just want to read uh, one one stanza from uh, uh, Praise God the Lord, ye sons of men, TLH 105. A wondrous change which he does make, he takes our flesh and blood, and he conceals for sinner's sake his majesty as God. He serves that I, a Lord, may be a great exchange indeed. Could Jesus' love do more for me to help me in my need? Beautiful words of comfort during this Advent coming to Christmas season. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Isaiah 62, verses 10 through 12. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. It's a pleasure as always. God does not hate you. He has not left you. God loves you. He has taken on your flesh. In him, you are holy. You are redeemed. You have been found, and you will not be forsaken because Jesus is your Savior. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.